Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CJ159, Substitutes for Religion. From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 269, July the 3rd, 1992. This evening, Otto Scott, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushduni, and myself will discuss substitutes for religion. We live in a day when Although the churches have a high percentage of membership, higher than perhaps any other time in our history, their influence is really at almost an all-time low, simply because people find their religion in a variety of substitutes. I learned recently of uh, two areas that have become substitute religions because of the Internal Revenue Service. It used to be in this country, in particular in New York City, where the very wealthy lived, in earlier years, that the wealthy gave generously to establish or maintain charities or to uh, make uh, possible great art collections and establish museums. But something developed after the income tax amendment was passed, and the income tax, in particular, after World War I, began to increase. The very wealthy found that with a variety of taxes, which have since increased phenomenally, they could no longer have the ambitious and expensive balls that were once commonplace. The only way they could maintain their old social calendar was now to have balls which were tax-deductible, ostensibly promoting a cause. And the two favorite causes became charities and art. They chose these two because it made possible as much pleasure as they could uh, squeeze into an evening, and sometimes until dawn, spend a vast amount of money and gain a tax deduction because it was for a tax-deductible cause, art or charity. It would be interesting to see how much federal legislation has one way or another helped create a substitute for religion. I think we'll start, and there are many subjects we could cite, as I already have, charity and art, uh, 
psychology, the uh, educational establishment, of course, is a substitute for religion and has a plan of salvation and a whole host of things that politics is involved in. But I think we can start with psychology. When I wrote Freud, I think about 25 years or so ago, I pointed out that Freud said that it was useless to try to deduce scientific proof in order to uh, disillusion people with that regard to religion. He said, as long as people are troubled by the problem of guilt, they will seek a savior. Therefore, the only way to destroy religion would be to convert guilt from a religious to a scientific problem. And this is what he dedicated himself to doing. As a result, we have seen the rise of psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, and various forms of psychotherapy as means of salvation. And their power is tremendous. The amount of money poured into these disciplines is enormous. And the psychotherapist has replaced the pastor and the priest in the cure of souls. Not that he succeeds at it, but he has replaced him. And his work in this sphere has been of deadly consequences. Not only have there been attempts in recent years to prohibit the clergy from doing any counseling, but to require them, if they do, to gain a license from a board of psychologists and psychiatrists. So far, these attempts have failed. But the fact that the attempts have been made indicates the direction of things. Well, with that introduction, Otto, would you like to comment on psychology and psychiatry, psychoanalysis as a substitute for religion. Well, I, I do agree with you that the question, the primary question was one of guilt. And the psychiatrist did replace the priest because psychoanalysis is an obvious steal from the confessional. Yes. In which patient is supposed to tell all. And fundamentally, this putting aside all the psychiatric jargon about transference regarding the psychiatrist's role and so forth, it was the transference of guilt also to the parents. Mm -hmm. uh, the parents are responsible. And uh, I remember asking a fellow once, well, and their parents were responsible for them. And you could carry this all the way back. It's a sort of slightly ridiculous thing to begin with. 
But the main thing here was not only that guilt was relieved, but also there was no sin. In psychiatry, there's no such thing as sin. No matter what the individual had done or experienced or had uh, believed, it was all acceptable. Uh, homosexuality or lesbianism or whatever was totally acceptable. And there was no remorse expected. All that was expected was an explanation of what made them that way. And once they knew why they were made that way, they wouldn't have to do it anymore. Well, that that's the part where psychiatry got <clears throat> into trouble, because nobody has been able to prove any difference in the behavior of individuals who have been psychoanalyzed before or after. They come out saying that they feel better, and that generally they... Uh, it's cost them a lot of money and taken a lot of time. And they have said things that they probably would never have otherwise have said. So gotten things off their chest. But you really cannot tell the difference in lifestyle between a person who's been analyzed and a person who has not. And it has spawned a whole tribe, you might say, of similar efforts with less fearsome vernacular. We have now groups that are applying these principles to each other in common. And they share the idea that there is no such thing as evil, there's only sickness. And this has permeated our court system. Nobody is evil, nobody is bad. People are just sick, or they're mistaken, or they're ignorant. But uh, there's no such thing as evil, excepting, of course, for Hitler. He's the only mm -hmm. remaining evil figure in the world. Douglas, would you like to say something at this point? Well, I uh, used to have, uh, when I was in business, I had customers a few customers who were psychiatrists, and I asked them, because they seemed to be strange, they were unusual people, <laughs> and uh, I asked them why they went into that field, and uh, they uh, said that they just sort of fell into it, that they hadn't originally had no intention of going into that field when they started out in school, but... Uh, in candor, they said that they thought that it was a great way to make a living. And when you stop to think about it, people give far less to the church than they do to their psychiatrist. And psychiatrists charge large fees, and you pay whether they cure you or not. Uh, just like uh, in the case of a doctor, they call it a medical practice, and that's that's the game because whether they whether they cure your problem or not, whether they absolve you of your guilt or transfer the guilt somewhere else so that you don't feel so bad about it, they, you still get the big bill. And uh, so you, you start to follow the money and you see a different uh, a different reason for that profession. It's very, very lucrative. Though the psychiatrist that I've known, 
one fellow owed the business a large bill when I took the business over. And I called him, and his wife said that uh, I could come out to the house and see him if I wanted to, but that he couldn't be disturbed at the moment. I went out there to either collect the money or pick up the equipment. And I knew this guy made a lot of money, lived over in Belvedere, in a very expensive home. When I arrived there, he was sitting inside of a huge hi-fi speaker, a large bass reflex speaker that quite large. He was sitting inside of it with a 16-ounce glass of straight scotch, full of scotch and maybe one or two ice cubes. And that's how the guy spent his waking hours at home. And uh, uh, the other one that I knew, uh, he had been married six times and uh, was unhappy with the sixth wife. He gave me an understand. So I haven't met a well-adjusted psychiatrist yet. Well, it seems it would be difficult. You know, farmers going into agriculture because they love land. They love the productivity of growing something or raising an animal. And doctors, to be a good doctor, you have to be comfortable with making important decisions. And you go into different fields depending upon your temperament. It makes you wonder what kind of temperament people have who want to listen to other people's problems. Well, they have no yardstick. I think that's what drives them around the bend, is they lose any semblance of where are the limits of human behavior. Um, they have no yardstick. Uh, religious uh, doctrine uh, means nothing to them. So they kind of have to make it up as they go along. They they have to try to derive from what they see going on in society what the norm is, and then try to to compare the patient to the norm and tell the patient whether he's normal or not. No, I don't think they do that. They there is no there is no uh, standard uh, of normality in psychiatry. Psychiatry takes the view that uh, that you are a victim of, of society. You have a problem. And so they, they don't deal with psychotics. Let's get down to in terms of medicine. In terms of medical practice, the psychiatrist doesn't make as much money as a surgeon. Surgeons make the most. The uh, psychiatrist takes a neurotic, but he will not take a psychotic. In other words, he will take somebody who can function but is unhappy. And a neurotic has been described as somebody who is afflicted with free-floating unhappiness. If you straighten out one area, they find another area to be unhappy about, and this is the way they live. So they always have, they have free-floating problems and they have money. They have to be able to pay for the treatment. So, essentially, it seems to me that they lift the idea of guilt, and they allow, now, of course, they've accepted homosexuality as, as a uh, choice, and therefore as part of normal behavior. 
and having gone that far, it would be pretty pretty difficult to ascribe any standard of normality to contemporary psychiatry. But I think it is interesting that Freud never taught his children or told his children anything about sex, that he had a classic Victorian marriage. In fact, he had two marriages, if I remember correctly. No, this was Einstein I was thinking of. But he had a classic Victorian marriage, and he himself was a classic Victorian. When he visited the United States, which he did not like, he was away from home for a while. He found American women very attractive, and he found the whole situation very uh, exasperating. And I think it was Stanley Hall who had him over as a guest. And Hall said, well, why don't you get a woman? Oh, he was shocked. He was absolutely shocked at that. So he was not what you would say the average European. He came out of the Viennese Jewish community, which was very insular, which talked a lot about acceptance in society, but which itself did not accept others. So he would have been a good subject for psychoanalysis, but he never underwent it. The only reason he's important, really, and not for his ideas, but for the effect that his ideas affected so many others. It was like Marx. His analysis is what has been accepted. That there's nothing wrong with you. It was all the fault of the people who mistreated you as a child. And this whole child-centered attitude toward life and the world is now widespread throughout the United States. We have all kinds of groups who pity themselves and who pity each other and get together to try to heal themselves of their guilts or their difficulties, their obsessions, uh, their bad habits, who all talk as though they are that way because they were mistreated as children. And that, I think, is, is where... Freud is still worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. I uh, want to go back to something you said earlier, which is central to the modern uh, counseling movement, confession. I was uh, at a conference 50 years ago. It could be a little longer than that. And this professor at a seminary of pastoral counseling gave a lecture. He also was a counselor at a church and had an office on the church premises. And he was very, very censorious of the traditional method of uh, the cure of souls by pastors and priests. It had to be made into a scientific discipline. And he passed out sample cards that he had devised so that everything could be jotted down as the person confessed. So that you sat there with a uh, writing board, a pad, and a pen. Sure, like in class. Yes. 
and you took down everything that he said, and you put it in his file. I was very upset, and I was one of the first to raise a question. I said, isn't this dangerous? After all, anyone can walk into that church office when you are not there and look up the records of Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. He was very indignant at that. I made the point that traditional priestly and pastoral work in the cure of souls was entirely off the record. Nothing written. Well, every now and then you read about a doctor's or a psychiatrist's office being broken into. And the statement is made that they were looking for drugs. But I've often wondered, is this not a means of getting information to blackmail? Because it's all there easily available. And I think if the story could be told or anyone could get at the data, they would find that a great deal of damage has been done to the lives of these peoples by these counselors, psychiatrists, pastors who are a part of this heresy and are keeping voluminous records. Something else Otto said that made me think of something I had never thought of before. Since your parents are to blame for everything according to psychiatry, because they shape your uh, your self-image, etc., and they give you your hang-ups, that's probably why zero population growth and not having children or having very small families or waiting later in life to have children, one of the reasons it was very acceptable wasn't just the economics. But if my parents gave me my problems, then if I have children, I'm going to pass on problems to them. So people more and more are waiting later in life, waiting till they're affluent and they can afford to spoil the child. Um, during the 60s, it was very common for these hippies who disowned their parents to be subsidized and get monthly checks from their parents. Perhaps part of it was their parents afraid they were going to somehow damage them by disciplining them. And one of the arguments for abortion is also, well, think of how many poor children you'd be bringing into the world, children growing up into a life of poverty. People are afraid to, to create any difficult situation that might in any way hinder their their children. Remember, remember the Dr. Spock child rearing manual that was popular in the 60s? Well, he had children on a, uh, a demand schedule. Uh, the generation before him had them on the clock. At a certain hour of the clock, you fed the kid and... Uh, you didn't pick it up and, and fool around with a kid in between times and so forth. It was very, very mechanical. Well, uh, products, of course, fell for the psychiatric explanation that their parents had been too rigid or this or that. 
Spark just said you should go in for demand feeding. The kid knows when it's hungry, so you feed it when it when it when it asks. Something like a cat, I think. But psychiatry is, I have, it is a heresy. It is an anti-religion. But it is it has established itself as the establishment religion. It's taken very seriously in the courts. And it's taken very seriously uh, on the highest levels. Uh, the psychiatrist is called in uh, in criminal cases and often in civil cases also. As And, of course, they give conflicting opinions. But they are a part of the establishment and who say that you do not accept their fundamental uh, arguments today is to brand yourself as a redneck, or somebody who doesn't know any better, uh, when they discover that you might know better and are still opposed to it, well, then there's, there's no possibility of further conversation. So we're really talking about an established religion when we yes. talk about psychiatry. Yes. Um, Dr. Martin and Deidre Bobgan wrote a very uh, telling book, Twelve Steps to destruction, codependency, uh, dependency, recovery, heresies. And it's a devastating critique of the whole codependency idea. What it amounts to, I think I can uh, sum up with a little illustration. At a church which professed to be thoroughly orthodox, they had two psychologists that dealt with all the couples or youth or anyone who came, old and young, and their whole premise was the codependency hypothesis. And this young couple were put through it. Now, there was no question that the young man was a scoundrel, a rat, as bad as you can get. And he took to this codependency idea with delight. And he told his wife joyfully, Don't you see, we're not at fault. Our parents did this to us. Now that, I feel, is compounding sin. Well... If we have no more to say on, uh, and there's a lot that can be said on psychology and these psychiatric heresies, perhaps we can go on to education. Well, I'd like to continue with the codependency. All right. Uh, it's an article in the latest Examiner on Sunday, last Sunday. He's quoting here, the article writer is quoting somebody who wrote a book apparently called Codependency No More. Guilt, he said, makes everything harder. We need to forgive ourselves, end quote. And then the writer goes on to say, someone should remind Behe that there's a name for people who lack guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. Sociopaths. We ought to be grateful if guilt makes things like murder and moral corruption harder. Mm -hmm. Now, getting rid of guilt is not really our problem. No. Our problem is to face up to what made us feel guilty and what we may, in fact, be guilty of. 
Yes. And to admit it. And the codependency, like which is a stepchild of psychiatry, is the idea that you're having a neurotic problem in tandem with somebody else. Husband, uh, the wife of, a, of an alcoholic, or the husband of a slut, or whatever. And that group forgiveness, confession, group confession, group forgiveness, can take care of this codependency. Now, if you strip the codependent argument all the way down, you practically be back to, you have no dependence. You're not dependent upon anybody, which is impossible. Uh, we, uh, we're part of society. There's no way we can disentangle without going insane. And uh, one wonders, really, what has fed so many people into these paths? We have all these social problems or social misbehavior problems and so much unhappiness at a time when we have more of the goods of the world than our ancestors ever dreamed of having. It sounds very much to me as though the leaders of religion, let me say, the clerisy, the clerics, have failed to maintain their own knowledge of the faith in order to transmit it to the people. Mm-hmm. And I remember you and I, Rush, read a book on the, forgetting the exact title, The Collapse of Religion in the 19th Century by an Englishman, uh, in which he talked oh, yeah. about the fact that the working class began to feel un- unwelcome in the churches mm-hmm. because the churches got so moralistic and so Victorian good that an average working man didn't feel that he belonged in the church. He didn't stop going. And uh, science and government began to argue that superstition is something to beware of and so on. The clergy doesn't seem to have been up to its predecessors in terms of defending the faith against new and essentially pagan ideas. Yes, uh, there is a very great failure on that area. Historically, it is known as apologetics, which unfortunately has, uh, in English, the idea of an apology. In reality, apologetics is the defense of the faith in an aggressive way to set forth its implication for every sphere. At this point, apologetics is the defense of the faith in an aggressive way to set forth its implication for every sphere. At this point, let's go on now to another substitute for religion, education. One of the books I wrote in the late 50s, early 60s, was The Messianic Character of American Education. What I found in the course of uh, the research I did on that was that the men who were the shapers of public education in this country saw it as the real religion. 
the means of saving society. Horace Mann was vehement on that. It is interesting that all the early ones, with one exception, were Unitarians. They did not see uh, religion as the salvation of man. The state was man's savior, and it would be uh, active in the saving of society where children were concerned through the state schools. That faith has never waned. It has been promoted very aggressively by the philosophers of education. And they do believe that the salvation of man and society depends on the public school and its programs. Well, I think most Americans regard all problems as being able to be resolved by better education and more education. I got a resume in the mail today from some poor fellow who put on his card, Help, with an exclamation mark after it. And he has, uh, I counted, four degrees. Each time he got a job, and apparently there's something wrong with his problems on the job because all the jobs he listed were fairly short duration, and each one was ended by his going back to college to learn something else. So he's involved in that search. Mm -hmm. Education has replaced status. Uh, There is a, a belief that if you go to school long enough, you deserve a certain level. Yes. And if you don't get that level, uh, the world is not treating you properly. It's not recognizing your hard work and your accomplishments in schooling. Yes, uh, I recall back in the 50s, this elderly woman whose son and uh, daughter-in-law themselves, uh, 50-ish, descended on her and stayed with her. The last I knew they were still with her because he had lost his job with a corporation. He was, and in those days, this was a lot of money, a $100,000 man. And he would not accept the position for less because with his educational background, plus his Harvard, I believe, business administration uh, degree. Nothing less would suit him. And he turned down one thing after another to the exasperation of his mother, who found it increasingly a burden to have to put up with him in the house. And this feeling that... uh, if you have so much education, you are entitled to a status. It's very prevalent. In fact, in uh, Asiatic and African countries, it is regarded as one of the curses that there are so many people who have gone abroad and gotten an education and come back are worthless because they feel that unless they gain a certain position that uh, 
They are, are not rewarded according to their merits. Well, there's a, a great hypocrisy. The liberal education establish, establishment accuses uh, religion of indoctrinating children in Christian schools, and yet in the public school system they're indoctrinated in everything else except uh, the things that they need to get through life. Uh, they're indoctrinated in uh, sex, they're indoctrinated in uh, political attitudes, they're indoctrinated in virtually everything that they want the kids to know, and yet they they always throw this epithet at uh, uh, religious uh, organizations as indoctrinating young people. And if they're not, if the public school system is not indoctrinating, I don't know what the word means. Yes. And the key to their future is always getting it, going to college, getting an education. It never works. They make laws and children working. Mm -hmm. And some students, even with colleges today, some students just are not, especially with what high schools are producing, some students just can't make it in college. Well, that's one of big business's biggest problems is just getting new hires just to show up every day. The attitude of kids today is that they work when they want to. It's almost a Neapolitan attitude. They work long enough to get their food for the day and they'll stop. If it's two o'clock and they have enough for the day, then that's as far as they're going to work that particular day. And that's the way young people in their late teens, early twenties today, that's their attitude. Well, I've had a retarded childhood, a retarded childhood, extended childhood, you might say. The I recall having a fellow once that I put on assignment, told him to go ask several men in a particular industry where they were on certain levels. And he spent the whole day, he was gone all day. He came back late in the afternoon. I said, where the hell have you been? He said, well, I was in the library. And I said, what are you doing in the library? I sent you out to check on the business situation. He said, well, I was looking it up. But I said, the library is a graveyard of dead information. What I want is what's happening today in business. And he was astonished. His eyes widened. He said, I've never been bawled out to going to the library before. <laughs> <laughs> he really felt abused. <laughs> well, in the latter part of the 60s, I uh, had a conversation with an elderly professor who was the editor of a uh, uh, scientific journal. I'm pausing because I said elderly and I suddenly realized he was younger than I am now. Well, everybody is. So, <laughs> go on. Well, <laughs> he was appalled at what was happening. He said, I get articles for this scientific periodical that I cannot understand. They are written by full-time professors at universities. And they cannot write English. So he said, it's a major problem for me 
even those that seem to be worthy, to render them fit for publication with a lot of correspondence back and forth. But he said, if you try to tell these people that they are semi-illiterate, they're angry. Of course. Because they have some degrees. And that ostensibly has saved them from uh, such a, a term. Well, there's an argument that underlies all this, and that is that we're all born with the same potential. Mm -hmm. And that all we have to have is an education. And everybody will be equal. Mm -hmm. They cannot confront the fact that a good part of the human race is ineducable, at least in scholarly terms. That doesn't mean that they're unintelligent. Uh, they may be very good mechanics. They may be this, but they may be that. Musicians or whatever. Uh, talent comes in a variety of forms, and education, unfortunately, is cast only in a few. And it leaves an awful lot of people out of that particular screen. And the idea that an education makes a better person has got to be conceived by blind men. Mm -hmm. Because the fact is, it has nothing to do with your morals. Uh, I think it was Macaulay who said our, our, uh, most of our geniuses have been great criminals. And he's, he's true. They take advantage of others. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a confusion in this country as to what education is supposed to be. It's really only a method of enabling you to make your way in the world and to contribute or participate and to give something to the world. There's another aspect. Uh, education, essentially, is what you said. It gives you the basics so that you can make your way in the world. And it transmits the heritage of the past to you as one of the young who represents the future of the culture. True. And at that point, modern education is at war totally with the past. It wants to destroy the past in order to create a new future. It has no idea of the size of that past once you destroy exactly. what people have already learned. And they have rejected the wisdom of the past insofar as the transmission of reading, writing, and arithmetic are concerned, so they are failing there also. So in the two key tasks of education, they are failures. Mark, you could probably tell us how difficult it is to have a transfer to our school of a child who's beyond the elementary grade because of the bad schooling he has. There, well, the two key aspects, one is the academics, and the other is the work habits. Of the work habits are often just not there. I've had very intelligent students, but they've never had to work, and they refuse to do anything that requires effort. As far as the academics, of the students I've had transfer into my class in seventh and eighth grade, probably one in four will do well. Means that three out of four will not. Uh, Three out of four will, will get very poor grades. 
and because in two years I can't do it. If I can get them in sixth grade, I can usually, uh, I can have them a year before it gets more difficult in the seventh and eighth grade, then, then I can still often do all right. But if the students who have come in at the seventh or eighth grade level, too far uh, off. it's very difficult for them to catch up. By the time they figure out how behind they are, and if they're going to decide to do anything about it, it's, they're, they're buried. The previous schools didn't make them work at all. Very often, no. I've had students uh, come to me who said, well, my teacher just graded us on what we turned in. Or I had another student this past year say, I asked in a math, regarding the type of a math problem, I said, did you, have you had this before? And he said, well, sort of. And then the other student who had the same teacher said, oh, uh, Mrs. So-and-so just says, her favorite line is, we'll, we'll go over this again, and then she never gets to it. So, their academics are often sorely lacking, and I only see them up to the junior high level. It would be very, very difficult to have a high school, and Christian high schools have this problem. What you do with the students who's come through your a Christian school into the high school, and now somewhere in the junior high age, it's often when parents say, "Oh, they're in junior high. I don't want them in this. You know, they're getting into drugs and socializing and so forth. Let's put them in the Christian school." Other students says, "My kid has gone through the Christian school." They're well adjusted. They can handle the public school. They need to socialize and make sense on. So very often there's a shift at about the seventh, eighth grade, or ninth grade level for high school, and you have a quite a mixture that amounts to uh, quite a bit academically. And I've heard of schools who have very, very serious problems. Uh, a teacher I had in high school. Now after I'd left, they had gone to this was a Christian school. She called it buffing, but they were bringing lower income students in who did not have any, you know, Christian schooling in their background. They did not have basic academics. Um, teaching them on the, from the test, giving them the test, they would all, she would have 80% of the class failing. She said it was, it was very scary how, how low academically it is. Well, they think that a Christian school is like, uh, an aspirin tablet that they can give a kid, and all of a sudden he's going to be all right. Well, essentially, yeah, they 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 think for some reason they often don't get scared and say they need something until it's it's quite late. Quite the, late. the social adjustment thing that the public school system puts out is uh, very destructive. It's almost as if our government wants young people to function only on a social level and to be under uh, the complete control of the government intellectually and let the government make all the hard decisions and just give the kid just enough information to get through the day. Well, they have an entire course in it. It's called social studies. Yeah. Social studies is to teach about society and how you should view society. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's to, uh, it's to program a child for how they, what their attitudes about others should be. Well, the public school today is made up of, uh, how to drive a car. How to have sex, uh, how to play sports, and, uh, 
that consumes about 90% of the day. Well, it's running into something very unusual, very interesting to me. Uh, business applies a certain amount of discipline. And even today, when it's difficult to dismiss anybody about all kinds of tribunals and so forth, nevertheless, the fact remains that a job is not secure and promotion are difficult and there's a lot of competing for promotions and so forth. So for many of these products from our schools encounter their first true discipline in the world of business. Now that has what you just said about schooling, teaching education, uh, teaching uh, sports and things like that. You come out of that, I'm seeing now some younger men, some products of that sort of education, MBA from Harvard and so forth, in which everything is taught on the case study method, and uh, everything is a team, but the team is like a basketball team. It's put together in order to win a game or a goal. And what you can contribute toward winning that goal uh, is enough to keep you on the team. But if you do not keep up with the team, you get out. And there's no fooling around about it. You're in a management position. You're fired between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning, and that's it. They'll clean your desk out and give you your stuff to carry out in your hands. They don't even want you back in the office. And there's somebody else put on the team. Now... That's different than it used to be. We used to, uh, I had protégés, and I myself was a protégé at one time when I was young enough. And other older men saw some promise in what I was doing. They would give me tips. They would take time to tell me things and so forth, and I would do the same in my turn. They don't have protégés. They have teams. There's no loyalty down. There's no loyalty sideways. There's only the game. Now, this is the end result of what turns out to become technically well-trained barbarians. Harder and tougher than any of the generations we've had before. They're not, they don't consider themselves tough. They don't come on tough. And they're Joe and Harry and, 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 and Bob and so forth. And uh, the manners are easy and casual. There's always first names and so forth. But if you don't keep up with the team, you're dead. Well, if the people in this country ever figure out that they're really paying for education twice, they're paying an enormous price to educate their kids in the schools and the kids come out uneducated and they go to get a job and then the company that they get the job uh, with has to retrain them and re-educate them in the basics and that has to get paid for and it's then the price of the product that the company makes. Well, MBA at Harvard costs about 25000 a year. That's, and, and there's lots of extras. So you have to you have to come from a fairly wealthy family to get this. Now, they may shove some others through and give them a diploma. 
that that's going on. But that doesn't mean anything because once they get in the job, they have a very short life if they can't keep up. Now this means a life without religious values. Mm-hmm. About a hundred and ten years ago, Hodge, the Princeton theologian, wrote in one of his books that the future of public education was very bleak. Because already, even though there was Bible in all the public schools, he could see what was happening. Because there were uh, people who were Unitarian or who were uh, Armenian Methodists and all in the schools, he said, doctrine is gone. And he said, what we are beginning to see is this. He who believes the most must give way to him who believes the least. And he said, in due time, he who believes the least will have to give way to those who believe nothing at all. And there will be a progressive downward integration in education so that both religion and equality will progressively have to suit those at the bottom. So that what he was describing was what Van Til later called integration downward into the void. I don't think we've seen the bottom yet in public education. No, obviously not. There's a great truth going on now in the state of California as to whether or not the educational bill will, uh, cost will be reduced. And I heard an ad and some woman was saying, isn't it a terrible thing that the governor wants to reduce education and millions of young children will no longer be able to go to kindergarten? Well now, kindergarten is not education. At least I never thought it was. I thought it was just a place to park the kids. And it's a great boon, no doubt, to working parents, but I didn't go to kindergarten, and I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> you know, it's important to the educational establishment because they want the indoctrination to start as early as possible. Kids today in public school kindergarten are getting uh, environmental indoctrination in all of their work materials. Well, then our, this our, our students always... There are some sections on the, the test we give all of our students test each year, and we can see where they fare. One area where we're always low, in one section on the test that kindergartners take is environment. Because they spent a lot of time on their environment, their surroundings, and they talk about Mr. Lizard, what Mr. Lizard does, and other, other <laughs> kindergartners will know more about the animals, you know, and how they live and where they live that some animals and art students don't know that, was, but they can read by the time they're out of kindergarten. So, that gives you some indication of what goes on in public school kindergarten. <laughs> you don't know Mr. Lizard, huh? <laughs> That's something. Well, there's a, there's an ethic that's being distorted going back to the common education. Um, there's much talk about equality and sensitivity in various forms, but I don't see signs of that ethic emerging in the product. 
in the in the in the people themselves. Uh, they they don't queue up. They push. They jump line. They'll cut in front of you in the car. They they'll scold you with foul language at the slightest provocation or none at all. Men and women alike. Uh, they steal. They lie. Nothing is safe. Everything has to be locked up. You can't believe any any answers. Don't ask any questions because you'll get a bad answer. You're wrong here, Otto. You're I'm describing not. a public school. Yes, that's what I that's, have to say. That's, they are producing. This is what they're producing. This is what they're producing. This is what the school is teaching. I ran across something a while back. I should have saved it. It was so ridiculous I just uh, passed over. The definition of freedom by a university student. Freedom is the right to heckle. (laughs) 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 Of course, that's a right which only the left can exercise. And then this is true. The next Mm -hmm. step to that is is nagging, and that's what we have with all of the uh, regulatory agencies in our government, all of these kids who went to college in the 60s and 70s, now have jobs in these regulatory agencies. So they've stepped from heckling to nagging. Well, I've heard on the radio that, you know, every every news broadcast, even if it's only three minutes, has to contain some new warning about some <laughs> regular habits. And the latest one was that hair dye may bring cancer. Mm-hmm. And... Rush Limbaugh, whom I heard, said uh, Reagan's longevity disproved that theory. (laughs) 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 Well, I liked what uh, Tom Sowell had to say about the breast implant. He uh, said, uh, everything has a risk so that if breast implants are completely safe, then they're the only safe thing in the world. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember Buchanan's description of a classroom in the University of Paris in the 16th century, where he taught. And he said, at any given moment, so many, such a percentage of the class would be in tears, and others would be being un- undergoing beating. <laughs> Universities. And others, yes. yes. And, and others would be doing something else. They sent them to the university when they were 11 and 12. They got out when they were 15 and 16. Finished. This was Scotland where uh, Buchanan taught, but it was common everywhere. Paris. He taught in Paris. Oh, yes, he that's right. The university of Paris. Yes. And they came out <laughs> speaking Greek and Latin as well as their native language. And uh, it's obviously learning is a difficult thing. And this is where I think traditional religion teaches that life is not a bowl of cherry. Uh, you know, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And uh, this is a veil of tears. And there's so many different ways the Christian religion has said life is hard. And the school says 
it's not hard. It's not supposed to be hard. Somebody's abusing you if you're having right. trouble. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. Dot com.